if you're innovating, creating, or making a difference. This show is for you. Welcome to Over Coffee. I'm Dot Cannon. Here on Over Coffee, we talk with artists and innovators about the process of changing the world in terms of what they do. So we have this sensor, which is very, very cool because in fact, it really uses very little energy, like a few watts, and they are very rapid. So that really allows us to give the patients real-time vision. The headlines were exciting ones. Previously blind patients, partially recovering sight through a combination of technology and therapy. That's the recent work of Paris-based biotechnology company, Gensight Biologics. In November of 2021, Gensight Biologics reported a second patient in their clinical trials had partially regained her vision during this treatment. Dr. Bernard Sheely is the co-founder and chief executive officer of Gensight Biologics. The following podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Please contact a healthcare professional with any medical questions. Dr. Sheely, before we get to talking about some pretty exciting things that have just been happening with Gensight Biologics, I would love to know how you first realized as a scientist that partial sight restoration is possible through therapy and technology. Well, that's a, that's a long story. Well, in fact, I've been interested in how we can intervene on the neuroscience space, on the CNS space, so to speak, for many years. There are different ways. I mean, there are some ways where you figure out a way to, for example, to stop neurodegeneration. That is, has turned out to be difficult. There are now some tracks that one can follow to get there, but it's, it's really difficult. There's another way to to think about this is how you can intervene and, and in fact change what the neurons are doing or restore one of the functions they have lost. And it came quite early on in the beginning of this century that a number of scientists in the US and in Europe have decided that they can introduce a protein that is sensitive to light. And by just putting light onto this protein, it will create an action potential, an electric current. And, and then neurons know how to deal with electric current. In fact, they are using electricity to transfer information from one to the other ones. Then there's a number of work that have been published, and it became quite obvious that if you want to restore a neuron function, you can use this methodology. And that's fine, because you can use a gene therapy approach whereby you select a gene that encode for a light-sensitive protein, and then you just transfer this gene into cells, and you can shed light, and they will perform a task you want to do. That's the very simple way of thinking. But then there's another issue, which is how you bring the light to the cells in the body. And I'm lazy, and one of the most direct thinking was, well, in the eye, the light is naturally coming into the body because, I mean, our eyes are made like this to perceive the light outside. And so we looked at various diseases that are blinding because of the loss of one function. And among these diseases stand what is called retinitis pigmentosa. And retinitis pigmentosa is in fact a disease that is linked to the progressive and slow loss of a very key cell, a very key neuron in the retina, which is called photoreceptors. And those photoreceptors, 
there are neurons that have the unique capacity to detect light and transform light into an electric signal that is then sent to the brain to assemble the image. So that was cool because this is the very first step of vision, right? Transforming light into something that the brain can understand. And in retinitis pigmentosa, in, in specifically the photoreceptor degenerates. So then at the age of 30, 35 years, they turn almost fully blind. And by 40, 45 years of age, they can't detect anything. And they still are young, right? 40, 45 is fairly the young age today. And they still have 40 years to go on without being able to see. And then discussing with ophthalmologists and, and clinicians, and we, we realized that could be really cool to, to try to help them retrieving some form of vision by using specifically the technology I described, which is now called optogenetics. So we did this. So we worked with a, the MIT, by the way, with uh, Professor Ed Boyden's lab, because he, has a, he had proteins that are really very, very exquisitely sensitive to light that would create the electric current, this signal, very quickly. And vision has to happen quickly because you don't want to wait for a few seconds before you see the balloon coming to you, right? You want to see it real time. So he had this protein, which is called Crimson R, which is very cool because it can create a signal in, in a few milliseconds, right? So it's very rapid. So we developed this, the vector, and we administer this into the eye of the patients. And then, of course, the most important goal was how do we transfer the light into, into those cells? And so we decided two things. One, that we want to have goggles that are as close as normal goggles as possible. And second, we needed to capture the image, capture the visual information in a very similar way that our eyes are doing. And I think most people can realize this. Our eyes don't see like a camera, like a traditional camera. We don't have, we don't see an image and then a few milliseconds after another image, etc. Our eyes don't function like this. In fact, in normal retina, those photoreceptors, they will immediately send a signal as soon as something is happening in their axis, right? They don't wait for everyone to get the information. They get the information, they transfer. And that allows us to have a very precise vision and very rapid. And this is conserved amongst all the animal species that have vision, from frog, from the mice, the rodents, all these, the, the dogs, the birds, and homo sapiens. We have exactly the same way of capturing the image. Photoreceptors are independent from their neighbors. So they don't need to have an image that transfer the signal. And that, of course, does not exist in technology. In the vision technology, we only have those kind of CMOS that are, in fact, a sensor. And every 30 milliseconds or every 24 milliseconds, something sends a signal. All the sensors are getting the image. They assemble a photo. And then if you have many photos going on, then you got the sense of movement. And this is what creates videos and films. But this is not the way we are functioning. So we had to develop a sensor that can exactly do what our eyes are doing, what the photoreceptors are doing. And we did this 
So we have this sensor, which is very, very cool because in fact, it really uses very little energy, like a few watts, really very little energy. And they are very rapid. That would correspond to, I don't know, probably like 100,000 image, 100,000 frame per second. So that's really allows us to give the patients real-time vision. And then the goggles have also a, a kind of an algorithm, which is in fact very close to uh, AI, where that will in fact understand the signals and then send the very same signal to the transformed cells with a, a kind of a small micro mirror, just like the what we have in the in the video projector, but it's miniaturized, of course, because I mean this is the eye, and that's cool. So we. We developed this. We went into rodents, you know, rats and mice. They're cool animals. It's easy to manipulate, but they are essentially night animals. So they don't have a very precise visual acuity. They're using other senses for this. So we've got good results, at least in those rodents. And then we moved to non-human primates to see whether that would happen the same way as in human. And that was also the case. And then we decided that we should move to the clinical trial into patients which we did a few weeks before this COVID crisis exploded. So, so we had the opportunity to inject, to treat, in fact, nine patients before the ophthalmology hospitals closed down because of COVID. And unfortunately, we were unable to follow up these patients during the COVID crisis. So that's been, that has introduced a delay of about a little bit more than 13 to 14 months. However we were able to give these goggles to the very first patient in the mid of the crisis. So we, we were able to show the results of these patients in May. And now we are now having new patients coming in. And there's this patient that was announced, I think it was last week. And it's a, it's a kind of an emotion, right? For me as, as a scientist and as an entrepreneur, being able to see those people that really barely see light, they can barely distinguish between night and day or whether there is some really bright light in the room they are sitting in, but that's all. They can't recognize face. They don't, they would not see any obstacle on their way to in a street. They don't see anything, right? And now you're just looking at those people sitting in front of a of a table and that are able to count pens on the table that are lined on the table. No one tell them where they are on the table. No one tell them what type of pen it is. They just look and they say, well, there's three pens and, and they can, they take the pens one after the other. And that's really a lot of emotion. It's not the end of the game, right? It's not the end of the game. We need to continue to progress because that's cool. They are seeing, but, and I believe that the more they will train, the more they will be able to see uh, details and to use this kind of bionic vision. But then we also need to improve on the algorithm. We need to improve on the functionalities of the goggles. For instance, one of the functionality that would be very interesting and discussion with, with the patients are really pointing to this is zoom function. Because, I mean, they still have the, the vision angle because of the technology is still a little bit narrow. They are like kind of a, they can see in front of them, but they, they don't see really outside. So having the possibility to zoom on a detail, for instance, if they are just in a shop wanting to select a product, they can eventually zoom onto, I don't know, the can or onto a box and eventually see more details about this or a number of things you can imagine. 
How exciting is this? In the middle of a very cool study that's doing something that I've tried hard not to use the word miracle for, but just sort of one. What's one of the absolute coolest moments for you? What was one of the most exciting moments that, yes, this is why you do this? Yeah, I think that really was the, it was really the vision that where we published the paper in Nature in May, because I mean, there was a moment where, you know, and again, that was because of the COVID situation, we had virtually no contact with either the patients or the doctors that were in charge of following these patients. We had no contact, no news. And so, you know, it's evidently we tried not to think about no news or think of blaming the COVID. We're saying, well, no news is really bad news. It seems that there's nothing. And so, and then all of a sudden you receive a phone call from the doctor and the doctor say, you know what? I think we have the world first. This patient is seeing this and that. And then you enter into the discussion and you say, well, but I mean, do we have confirmation? And he said, yes, we have confirmation because we can also measure in the using a, an electroencephalogram we can measure in the visual cortex of the patients how much he can see. So it's not that the guy by miracle just see. We can also double check that indeed the visual cortex is being receiving information. And that I think that was the most impressive moment for me. What are some of the immediate milestones now as you progress forward? What are some of the things you'd like to see happen within the next, let's say, year and a half to two years? So, so now we're really uh, developing the, the new version of the goggles. The version that has been used was very experimental. It was a prototype. And it was, we treated only one eye in these patients, just for, because I mean, making sure this is absolutely safe. So we treat one eye. So now the next really big milestone for us is certainly release the information about all the nine patients, because I believe all the nine patients will show a progression in visual acuity. But the next step is really to do bilateral injection and use the bilateral goggles to even certainly improve their vision, give them a 3D vision because bilateral vision is very important for detecting the three dimensions. And that's probably going to happen by early 23. When you say be sure this is safe, have you encountered much in the way of risks or anything? Well, we have to be careful this doesn't happen. No, I think we... At worst, we saw some mild to moderate inflammation in the anterior chamber of the eye that was always revertible, either naturally or by just a, a transient corticosteroid treatment, local treatment, of course. So really nothing really of importance and, and nothing that would just flashes some orange or red light to us. So that's clearly very well tolerated. Did I see that the FDA fast-tracked this particular therapy and technology? Yeah, it's cool So, because, I mean, they are going to help us, yeah. How do we know if a patient is a good candidate for this? I'm going to assume that not everyone is somebody for whom this might work. I think, well, it's a good question. That, in fact, one, we, we don't select candidate because we believe they will, they will respond. But we, in fact, all candidates that have lost their photoreceptors will be fine provided that the optic nerve is functional. If a patient has, in addition to the degeneration of the photoreceptor, if there is a disease of the optic nerve, then that will not work because the signal will not be being correctly or will not be transferred at all to the visual cortex. And we need clearly the, vis- the signal to get to the visual cortex because the, the vision really happens in the visual cortex. So patients that have a disease of the optic nerve would not be 
will tend to avoid recruiting them, of course. But all patients, whatever the mutation they have in their photoreceptors, the, whatever the reason why they're losing the photoreceptors, if their optic nerve is functional, they're a good candidate. What are the implications for other diseases of the eye besides retinitis pigmentosa? I'm thinking maybe glaucoma, macular degeneration. Is that something that you might be looking at in the future? Yeah, sure. And of course, we, we of course are looking at the one form, the late form of macular degeneration, which is called geographic atrophy, because geographic atrophy is also linked to the degeneration of the photoreceptors. But it's very particular because one, it's an aging disease, so it's nothing as the genetic disease like retinitis pigmentosa. And most, uh, mostly the geographic atrophic patients have lost their central vision. So they are indeed unable to read, unable to recognize faces, unable to drive, unable to watch TV, but still they keep some peripheral vision. And so with the peripheral vision, they can move into the environment. They would recognize quite easily where they are, right? So it's not the same level of emergency. Also, geographic atrophy happens usually after 70 or 75 years of age, which that does not mean that they don't deserve having a treatment and being able to see again, but that imposes us to be really very careful not to get any further deterioration of their sight. So we start with retinitis pigmentosa for this purpose because RP patients, they don't see. So we can't deteriorate anything. And now we know that we're not deteriorating anything, of course, but we, we already saw this. Now, probably as well in 23, we'll also move and see what we can do for these uh, geographic atrophic patients and try to restore their vision because many, many of these patients, they may not ask for getting back to a perfect reading or things like this, but I mean, giving them the capacity to be able to recognize their grandchildren, recognize their relatives. I think that's really what they're asking. And I think that's really almost easily doable with the optogenetic technology. Dr. Gili said he'd like to add an important acknowledgement. One thing I'd like to do is really here to send my really deep and warm thanks to the patients that have accepted to be amongst the first to be treated with optogenetics because it's not easy and and they're probably the true heroes of this journey. And, and I really thank them a lot. If someone has a loved one who has RP, knowing that this is not for everyone, knowing that this is not going to be happening tomorrow, but how would they get updates with what you're doing? Uh, we do regularly communicate about the result of the clinical trials. We are also now uh, moving into increasing the awareness of what we're doing in Europe and in the U.S. so that essentially patient association or patient advocacy group can and just be informed that this is ongoing. We, For instance, we have really good relation with the Foundation Fighting Blindness in the U.S. That, as, and we are discussing this, and they really offer to help us even in the clinical trials. So we are discussing with them. And, and of course, they will would, they would just diffuse the information that this is happening. I think also the important point is that they, of course, it's unfortunate and it's probably very, very emotionally tough to lose vision or to see your son or your daughter losing vision. But I would say that as the technology develops, there is no emergency. They, if optogenetic gets to where we believe it will, it will go with being useful for all these patients, there's no emergency. They would, they would be able to be treated one day and three years from now, two years from now is not, 
It's not a big deal in the course of their disease. I understand this is tough for them, right? So don't take me wrong. I mean, I, I know it's tough, but but yes, it's coming and they will be able to receive such treatment. And of course, I'm going to throw in my disclaimer that you and I are having a conversation for informational purposes only, not yeah. intended as medical advice here. And please, no, anybody no. listening who has a medical question, contact a healthcare professional. Absolutely, absolutely. What if everything happened exactly as you wanted it to? Where would you like to be in five years from now with the therapies that you're doing? What will happen in five years if it happens exactly like you want it to? I think in five years, we should have the market authorization in the US and in Europe and really just be able to provide this treatment to the largest number of, of patients, particularly RP. But I'm also thinking that for geographic atrophic patients, that could also be a very useful technology. So five years from now, we should be in a position to market. Let's give the website where people can get some information. For- oh, it's www.genesitebiologics.com. GenSiteBiologics.com. Yes. Final question, Dr. Gili. If people could only get one thing from you about innovation, creativity, and making a difference, what would you like them to take away from the work you're doing? I think the, the most important thing I believe I've learned during the past 20 years in this domain is being resilient. So you should really just believe in, in the vision you want to convey and just stick to it. And there, there's ups and downs. There are periods where things don't go the way you would like them to go. But if you're resilient enough, I think, and really working hard to contribute to the solution, then that would turn out to be right and, and you will succeed. Innovation is not an easy journey. It's a tough job, but, but it pays. Dr. Gilly, thank you for your time today. You're very welcome. You and I have been listening to Dr. Bernard Gilly. CEO and co-founder of Paris-based biotechnology company, Gensite Biologics. Find out more about Gensite Biologics' work at their website, gensite-biologics.com. That's gensite-biologics.com. The preceding podcast was for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Please contact a healthcare professional with any medical questions. And that concludes this edition of Over Coffee. Thank you for listening. Listen to more Over Coffee podcasts at twomavericks.com. That's two, T-W-O, Mavericks, M-A-V-E-R-I-X. And you can contact us at twomavericks at gmail.com. The music you're hearing is royalty-free production music provided by Pond5 at pond5.com. I'm Dot Cannon. Here's wishing you a cappuccino day.